Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, why it's never been more important to remember, Aaron O'Toole tries to consolidate power, and why the UN's getting a little bit nervous about COP26. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North, Thursday, November 11th, 2021. Remembrance Day 2021, the 100th anniversary of the Poppy campaign. And I think occasion enough to dispense with the irreverence for at least a few moments as we talk about the importance of remembering. As I said a moment ago, this is the 100th anniversary of the Poppy campaign. And while I would love to celebrate that and say that the Poppy is strong, it has never been weaker, I would argue. And just take, for example, the fact that when you look around anecdotally, there's no data, no peer-reviewed study on this, there are fewer and fewer Poppies around in the world. Part of this is that people might be less and less motivated to put them on for whatever reason, but I would also say there is a supply issue. It's harder and harder to find one. Take, for example, my shortcoming on my show Tuesday. I was not wearing a poppy. I had come back from overseas, and in my limited time walking around the world in Canada on Monday, I didn't encounter a single store that was selling them. So when it came time Tuesday morning to record this show, uh, shamefully, I didn't have a poppy to put on. Now, that's no excuse. I, I could have made a point and, and gone out of my way, but unfortunately, I had run out of time. But the reality is we are all culpable in this. We are all guilty of this in a way, of allowing remembrance to not be the driving force it once was. I remember, pardon the pun, growing up in school and we had the Remembrance Day ceremonies all the time. We had the veterans come and speak. We had the poppies that were being foisted upon us. They were in every store, anywhere you went. You had to work hard to avoid Remembrance Day. And then there was a turning point when people just got complacent about it. And a big part of this, I think, was when more and more veterans, the kind who had been speaking to school assemblies, the kind you'd see lining the streets for Remembrance Day parades, when they became fewer and fewer in number. There have not been any World War I veterans for quite some time. While we do have a large number of World War II veterans, they're getting more and more frail, and they too are dwindling in number. And conflicts after World War II, like the Korean War, like the Vietnam War, which, yes, did have some Canadians participating in it. And then later on, you go to other conflicts like the Gulf War and right up into Afghanistan. These things do not have the cultural significance that World War One and World War Two had. So a lot of veterans who laid down their lives in these conflicts are not given their due on Remembrance Day, which is, I think, a great shame to this country and to the idea of remembrance itself. Remembrance Day is not meant to be just about thanking veterans, although I do think you should do that on Remembrance Day, as you should on every day. It's about specifically honoring those who laid down their lives for this great pursuit of an ideal, whatever it was. It could be the ideal of standing up for your country. It could be the ideal of fighting for freedom. It could just be this desire to make a difference when the world was facing monumental challenges, the likes of which we've gratefully never seen since then in terms of the scope and scale of those two great wars. Whatever the motivation is, Remembrance Day is necessary because as living memory becomes harder and harder to find, 
it becomes easier and easier to forget. I've written about this in the past in the context of Holocaust remembrance. We all say, yeah, we know the Holocaust, we know it's terrible, but one of the greatest threats in Israel that they're seeing, and and again in the Jewish diaspora around the world, is Holocaust indifference. Not people who don't believe in the Holocaust, but people for whom it's such an abstract and irrelevant concept that they don't feel the need to remember. We know that global conflict is in decline. The shape of war is very different now than it was a century ago, than it was a half century ago. War looks very different. The idea of these mass interstate conflicts like the Axis versus the Allies are rare. They're, in fact, all but unheard of now. But the reality of this is that we cannot allow ourselves to forget. This is what Remembrance Day is supposed to be about. It's right there in the name, Remembrance. Remembering the world the way it was, remembering the sacrifice that was so important and the sacrifice that has given us the world and peace and relative calm that we have today. And that's the great irony of Remembrance Day. It's harder to remember now because of a world we have thanks to those we need to remember. I know that Don Cherry had said in an interview with Joe Warmington the other day how shameful he finds it that there are so few poppies you see when you're walking around on people's lapels, on people's jackets, whatever the case may be. And you can't argue with the facts. When you look around, they are not as ubiquitous as they once were. So the poppy is a tremendously important symbol, a symbol of a sacrifice that we hope is never as necessary as it was 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 60 years ago. It's also a symbol of a world we've moved beyond, but as such, one we can never forget. Lest we forget, let those words carry us now and forever. Back in a moment. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show, delving back into the irreverent forms of commentary now. And I want to focus a little bit more on the conservative shadow cabinet, which I touched on earlier in the week on the show. And I I noted that a couple of key snubs had taken place. Marilyn Gladue, who formed the Civil Liberties Caucus, speaking up against vaccine mandates. She was not given a shadow minister portfolio. Leslin Lewis, one of the star conservative candidates, former leadership candidate for the conservative party is not in the shadow cabinet either. And I actually did some number crunching because a couple of things happened that I want to take aim at here. Number one, shortly after I recorded the show on Tuesday, Marilyn Gladue issued an apology. And not that I know Marilyn all that well or can speak to her motives, but it's the type of apology that tends to be the kind forced from above in my experience. She says, I'd like to apologize for my inappropriate comments about COVID-19 vaccines during a recent CTV interview. Upon reflection, I realized how dangerous it is to share misinformation about the severity of COVID-19 and the safety and efficacy of vaccines. I retract these comments in full. I apologize unreservedly to Canadians. I apologize to my caucus colleagues and leader, capital L leader, for the distraction my comments have created. And then the boilerplate, the vaccine are safe and effective. They prevent serious illness. She encourages everyone to get vaccinated and so on. And and then this member of parliament for Sarnia Lampton, who I don't even know if has uh, how many people, I don't know how many French people there are in her riding, then issues the same apology in French as well, which kind of just reinforces that this is that standard political boilerplate apology that has the leader's office's fingerprints all over it. 
And even with that apology, Marilyn Gladue does not secure herself a place in the shadow cabinet. Neither does Leslin Lewis. Well, something else happened that I found quite fascinating because shortly after the shadow cabinet announcements came, the Conservative Party of Canada, Aaron O'Toole's office, also announced a slew of deputy shadow minister appointments, deputy shadow cabinet appointments. Now, this is not something that I recall happening with as much gusto as it happened under Aaron O'Toole. But if you look at the press release from the Conservatives, you see there are how many dozens, dozens of names that are now taking on the roles of being deputy shadow minister. There's a deputy shadow minister for foreign affairs, a deputy shadow minister for indigenous services, a deputy shadow minister for justice in the attorney general of Canada, deputies for everything, deputies galore. And you may think, okay, what's the big deal? A shadow minister has a deputy, right? Well, there are 119 members of the Conservative Caucus. 119. There are dozens of shadow ministers and there are now dozens of deputy shadow ministers, which means pretty much when you look at the numbers, almost every single Conservative could have a portfolio of some kind. Almost every member of the Conservative Caucus could have some role. You have to work, when you're giving away this many titles, you have to work hard to exclude someone, but that's exactly what the Conservatives have done here. So of the 119 members of caucus, only 37 do not have titles. Only 37. So that means that 82 of 119 Conservative MPs have been given some title by Aaron O'Toole, 37 37 do not have them. So again, at a certain point, like you've got to really work hard to be one of those 32. So we did some crunching on this and we actually put together the list at True North and we looked, uh, you know, MP by MP. There was one guy, Alan Reyes or Alain Reyes in Quebec, who was actually given two titles. So originally we had a discrepancy in our numbers and I'm like, why, why is this not adding up? One guy got two titles. That's why. So things are so bad that, uh, you know, 32, 37 people have no title and one guy even gets two title. Nevertheless, you look at this and I'm going to read a couple of names. Now, these are people that got nothing. They've not been made a, a deputy minister or a deputy shadow minister. They've not been made a shadow minister. They've not been given a leadership role in the party like, you know, caucus whip, deputy whip, all of that. Uh, Dean Allison, Bob Benzen, Kelly Block, Colin Carey, Michael Cooper, Michael Cooper, very well known. He was defenestrated a couple years back by Aaron O'Toole and uh, by Andrew Shear rather, and now by Aaron O'Toole as well. Uh, you have uh, some folks that are not as well known. Earl Dreeshen, very longtime conservative. Rosemary Falk and Ted Falk, again, very well known out west. Cheryl Gallant, she of course is in the media's crosshairs, not infrequently. Marilyn Gladue, Sarnia Lampton, not given a file at all. Rachel Harder. This is, again, an up-and-comer, tremendously smart young member of parliament, has done a lot of work. The liberals tried to railroad her from being a committee chair because she was pro-life. And she stuck through it. She stuck to her guns. She worked hard. And now the Conservative Party is leaving her without a portfolio. Tom Kamich, he's been a longtime supporter of True North, I believe. He's appeared a number of times. Again, a solid advocate, not at all included. And then we have Leslin Lewis. This is an interesting one. Aaron O'Toole was welcoming Leslin Lewis with open arms after the conservative leadership race, and now she's just this problem member of caucus. And you get a couple of others here that I, just, that I think need to be pointed out. 
Scott Reed, longtime MP going back to the Stephen Harper days. Alex Ruff, he was the conservative defense critic up until the election and now has no file whatsoever. And some others as, as well, including Shannon Stubbs, who was one of the more vocal MPs in speaking up against Aaron O'Toole's leadership. And her reward is not a single portfolio. Now, some of these might just be names to you that don't mean anything, and that's fine. I'm going to speak to the significance of them because I did an exhaustive search, and let me tell you, almost every single one of these 37 members of parliament who did not get an appointment to the shadow cabinet or deputy shadow cabinet, almost every single one is pro-life. Now, I want to be very careful. There are pro-lifers who are appointed to positions. There are members of the Conservative Caucus who are pro-life who were given certain appointments, certain roles, including in some cases some higher profile roles. But I also think it needs to be pointed out that almost every single one who was snubbed is pro-life. So I don't know if this is an exercise in trying to sideline social conservatives indirectly or directly. Kathy Wagenthal, she's the member of parliament for Yorkton Melville. She was the one who introduced the ban on sex selective abortion. She is not included in the list. She is excluded from any public role in the conservatives. Leslie Lewis as well, very prominent social conservative in the leadership race. It was her supporters that ultimately gave Aaron O'Toole the victory. She has been specifically excluded. So too have a number of other members of the caucus. Again, there are a couple on the list that I, well, there's one on, on the list in particular that I know for sure is not pro-life. There are a couple I'm not sure about, but I know there are a lot on this list who are for sure pro-life members of the conservative caucus who make up a significant part of the conservative movement, the conservative party, the conservative base, and more importantly, are people that Aaron O'Toole has claimed he wants to continue to have inside the fold. But anyone who's ever expressed any independent thought on the idea of leadership, people like Shannon Stubbs, people like Chris Warkington, people like Marilyn Gladue, all of them are now sidelined. And here's something I want to bring attention to. You may remember in 2017, the Conservative Party of Canada leadership race had just a, a massive, massive contingent. There were 13, 14 candidates at various points. And at the end of that leadership race... Andrew Scheer, who won very narrowly, gave every single one of them, gave every single one of them a role in his shadow cabinet. The only one he didn't was Deepak O'Brien, the late Deepak O'Brien, who turned it down. But Andrew Scheer offered every single leadership contender a spot in his shadow cabinet because he said that they were all part of the party and this was essential for unity. Now, you have to work hard to, to take 13 people that were your opponents and put them in your shadow cabinet, to put them on your leadership team. But that was precisely what Andrew Scheer did. Now you fast forward to the 2020 leadership race, in which Aaron O'Toole emerged victorious, and in which there were just four candidates when all is said and done. And let's talk about those four candidates. Aaron O'Toole was the winner. Peter McKay was ousted and forced out. Derek Sloan was kicked out of the Conservative caucus. And Leslyn Lewis has been excluded from shadow cabinet and her comments about vaccine choice condemned by the leader. You expand even further outside that and Marilyn Gladue, who was seeking the leadership and of course didn't get the money or signatures in time, she's excluded as well. But there were four candidates and none of them 
appear in the conservative shadow cabinet. Only one of them appears in caucus. The other one was kicked out of caucus. The other one did not run. And the one who did get elected has been denied any position, despite how Aaron O'Toole talked about how important it was to include her. So just contrast those two visions. Andrew Scheer making a point of bringing everyone who he defeated into his shadow cabinet and Aaron O'Toole specifically excluding anyone who's ever criticized him from his shadow cabinet. So there's very much a whip cracking taking place. You compound that with what's happening to Burt Chen, the suspended national council member who's now being subject to his emails and documents and data being uh, requested by the party. Apparently he has to turn over all of this information as though it's some kind of inquisition for the crime of launching a petition saying we need to have a leadership review. If you are clinging on to your leadership in a way that makes it so that anyone who is critical of you does not have a place in the party, you are not confident or self-assured in your leadership. And I don't think anyone can look at what Aaron O'Toole is doing right now and say that these look like the actions of a guy who's confident that he can hold on to power. I, I think what Scott Hayward from right now said in a, uh, an interview with True North is that this is all looking like desperation. And you know what? I can't disagree with that. If you are confident in your leadership, you can actually be a bridge builder. You can bring people in who disagree with you, and you can say, by coming in and being part of the shadow cabinet, we'll all have very rigorous discussions. We'll approach the issues with vigor and rigor, and then we will go and work together as a team. But by only surrounding himself with, I don't want to say sycophants, because there are some very good people that are appointed to the shadow cabinet, but by specifically excluding those who will not be yes men and yes women, you aren't exactly giving confidence that you're prepared to entertain all of these different perspectives. Remember, this is the guy that was all about conscience rights. This is the guy that was all about MPs voting in accordance with their values and their consciences. But when they speak up and go against the prevailing narrative on COVID alarmism, all of a sudden it's, well, no, that's irresponsible. No, we can't talk about that. No, MPs shouldn't have been talking about that. And all of those MPs are completely sidelined. And again, I mean, these MPs who are excluded, I don't know the stories of all of them. Some of them might not have wanted posts. Others might be perhaps running to be Deputy Speaker of the House or something like that. But I know that most of them are pro-life. Most of them are solidly conservative. And most of them were sold a bill of goods by Aaron O'Toole when he was elected that they would have a place within the Conservative Party, that they would have a place within the Conservative movement and now are being completely sidelined and I would say shafted. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. We are back. This is The Andrew Lawton Show. I, I want to turn our attention back to COP26 in Glasgow, which is coming to an end in, I think, tomorrow, actually. As, as a matter of fact, the conference is wrapping up. And the United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, is not exactly happy with the progress. Now, I'll I know I was trying to do it without laughing and smiling, but I, I couldn't do it. So, well, I, I've given up my perspective about this. And it's not because I don't care about the planet. It's because I don't believe that that the dangerous policies being advanced by the UN, by the World Economic Forum, by a lot of the alarmists that tend to drive the narrative at COP26 are going to do anything about the environment. They're just going to hurt Canadians and people around the world who are forced to foot the bill for these things. Well, 
As I've talked about for months now, a lot of the efforts in COP26 and the lead up to it have been based around an outcome that was already set before the conference began. And one of them was this idea of, quote unquote, keeping 1.5 alive, unquote. And this is that one of the key goals was to come together and reach an agreement that would dedicate countries to reducing so-called global warming to a rise of 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. In, in uh, Paris, a few years back, they agreed to 2% or 2 degrees rather, and then said they're going to pursue efforts for 1.5. That wasn't good enough. For Glasgow, they wanted to reach a, an agreement where they would say, no, 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 we have to keep temperatures to less than 1.5 degrees above. And it sounds from what Antonio Guterres said to Associated Press, that isn't happening. He said that the goal is, quote, on life support, unquote, but until the last moment, hope should be maintained. The reason I want to talk about this is because, well, he's saying they're probably not going to yield the results that they wanted. He said that no one has come close to the UN's three priorities for the conference. One of them is cutting carbon emissions by half by 2030 to reach this goal. Now, this is insane because when you're talking about carbon emissions, which, by the way, are not the problem of Canada, they're not the problem of the United Kingdom when you look at what's coming from China as one notable example, but to say they have to be slashed in half doesn't happen overnight. So governments have to find some way to punish people who they decide to malign as polluters in order to reach these goals. So when you see something like this happen, it's going to fall on the do-gooder countries, the people like Justin Trudeau, to make this happen, even if the rest of the world isn't. But here's my, my concern, is that the UN tries to claim that it does not have an agenda in and of itself. The UN tries to claim that it is just a collection of countries and it doesn't have a mandate beyond what those individual countries have. But here he is saying he's disappointed that these UN goals are not being met by the countries negotiating. Well, hang on, if the UN is supposed to be responsible to these countries, how does it have an agenda that is different from the countries that are at the negotiating table in Glasgow right now? And this is a very key question. And obviously the UN has this agenda, they have their initiatives, they have their priorities. But the problem is on things like this, they tend to just take on a mind of their own and start working against the countries that are actually forced to make this work. You can't vote out Antonio Guterres. You can't vote out the UN regime. You can't vote on these UN agenda items and these UN climate goals. They are completely removed from the people that are forced to deal with the consequences of them. So if the countries are actually having some realistic discussions right now and saying, we don't think this is feasible, we don't think this is viable, they should not be condemned by someone who ultimately is supposed to be accountable to them. I said earlier that I was convinced that 1.5 was going to be in there. I was convinced that it was already written before this started. And I don't know, maybe they're trying to just lower expectations. I don't know. I'm not sure what is at play here because the whole point of this is that they're trying to remove themselves from scrutiny here. I think I mentioned earlier, we were planning on covering this. We were planning on attending and covering this and the UN would not accredit True North. So you can tell they only want certain journalists to have access, like the Associated Press, to whom Antonio Guterres gave this exclusive interview, and not those that are actually going to start poking holes in this narrative, which, I, which ultimately penalizes successful countries and industrialized countries 
because of the fact that China doesn't want to come to the table. We've got to end things there. Hopefully we'll have some more to talk about in the COP26 outcomes in the next show. But tomorrow we have a, a very special edition of the program looking at healthcare reform. You won't want to miss that. And we'll talk to you then and also next week. This is The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you, God bless, and lest we forget. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.